This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to the food podcast, Side Dishes, a Village Soundcast Network miniseries where we celebrate the flavor of home. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Dear Lindsay, I keep waiting for the right time to write. And of course I should know that doesn't exist. Today I had every intention of finishing this letter But then something happened and it changed what I wanted to say and I had to start again. When you and I met, on that serendipitous, glistening Sydney day, we talked with such ease about the twists and turns of life and what makes up the flavours of home. And you'd asked if I'd write about what the phrase meant to me. Of course I said, and even then my imagination had zipped ahead, gathering tastes and scents, and... I did it. I wrote you a lovely letter about learning to cook for shearers and growing our own meat and about picking walnuts from the tree down by the creek and digging new potatoes. But then this morning, when I went out early to check on my old horse, his baldy white face with tiny pony ears pricked to greet me wasn't there. Maggie McKellar is an Australian writer and sheep farmer. Maggie and I are modern-day pen pals. She wrote me as a listener of the podcast, and I soon became a fan of her writing. I learned about her childhood with one foot in the city, the other on a farm. She told me about being a graduate student at the University of British Columbia in the 1990s, where she studied frontier women in Canada and Australia. She'd studied Susanna Moody, an English-Canadian writer and pioneer. We have the Commonwealth in common, and a love of stories. We're descendants of people who chose a new life in a new place. But she is drawn upon the tenacity required of those pioneer women in a way I never have. Maggie has experienced the loss of a husband and a mother. She raised her young children alone, and then she started fresh in Tasmania with her kids, a new partner, and her beloved horse. Straight away I knew what had happened. He was always there. I found him near the creek and sank to the cold ground next to him. I stroked his still nose and let the tears roll unchecked. Around me everything hummed. Tiny birds in the gorse, the puzzled snuffling of my daughter's young mare smelling death for the first time. My Labrador, sombre by my side, I sat in the cold, and I knew home was not just about a flavour on my tongue. It wasn't about a scent or a meal. It was about memory and the web of connections that stretched beyond the boundaries of our skin, through our animals, into the land we live on, and then out into the world beyond. Last month, my son Charlie wrote a sonnet for his grade 7 English class. He said he liked the rules of a sonnet. 14 lines, 
ten syllables per line, feelings, emotions, and thoughts packed up neatly in a formula. His sonnet opened like this. My dog dreams will rest in these fourteen lines. And on it goes, in the rhyming pattern of an English sonnet, A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. He shares his thoughts on how his dad thinks a dog is a chore, nothing more than picking clothes up off the floor. But the void is there, the warm spot on the bed, the welcoming hello, the soft pats on the head. His sonnet reminds me of salt, a crystalline mineral. A pinch can bring food to life, but too much can ruin it. And when it isn't there, you taste the void. When life turned on me years ago, I went home. I packed my kids, who were then seven and two, and our old dog in the car. I quit my job at Sydney University, and I moved back to my mother's family farm in central west New South Wales. There I bought a horse. He was old then. But that horse rescued me. He represented my determination to make a home for my kids. A home which wasn't a reflection of the losses we'd endured, but was rich and adventurous and full of life. I bought him and I shook my fist in the face of fate. I will not be afraid, I said, though of course I was terrified. Then on his broad back my kids learned to jump logs, to chase cows and muster sheep. In the summer they'd ride bareback down to the ancient mulberry tree and stand, balanced precariously on his back, to reach the high branches. They'd come home in the lengthy summer afternoons with hands and faces stained purple. In winter I'd boil barley to add to his feed. It would fill the kitchen with an earthy essence as it swelled and softened. I'd carry the cooling pot up to the stable, mix it with freshly cut loosened chaff and pour it into his feed bin. Then I'd lean my head against his neck and listen to the primordial crunch of his jaws. My breath would hang in the cold air. Down in our cottage the kids were asleep and I'd sit for a moment and know a simple, deep contentment. There's a band from Vancouver, British Columbia, the Be Good Tanyas, that gives me the feeling of deep contentment. One song in particular. It's called Dog Song 2. Over the years, I've played it when I felt lonely or sad or even happy and grateful. It's about the loss of a pet. It's about grief. But it captures the beauty to be found in all of this. Out in the trees, dirt on. We lay him down forever And on that hill There it was still As in the ever after The song played as my parents drove home from the vet on a hot day in the summer of 2003. Our dog Chloe, an elderly cocker spaniel, lay in the back seat wrapped in a blanket, still. That morning, my dad dug a grave for her in the clay earth next to our family cottage. As the shovel hit the earth, Chloe made her way over, deaf and full of tumors, lay down at his feet, and looked up at my father, ready. He lays 
That's when the tears began. He didn't even know why. He never really liked Chloe. He'd admit that. She was part of our lives when things were difficult. His mother had dementia. We had a house fire. His work was demanding. And then there was his heart attack. But on that day, as he dug the grave, he couldn't stop crying. He said he cried for the first time for his father, who died at 57, and his brother, who died at 43. And he cried for his mother, who wasn't the same person at the end. And he cried for our dog. It was grief compounded. They buried Chloe with her favorite thing, a tennis ball. I was living in England at the time. My mom shared the story in a letter. She wrote about the loss of our family dog, the grief of my father, and how it was all put to music by the Be Good Tanyas on the drive home from the veterinary clinic. I love letters. I love receiving them. I love reading them. I love writing them. I love their immediacy and how they build worlds. Back in my other life, when I worked as an historian, I'd spend weeks in archives, reading letters written from the very edges of both the Canadian and Australian frontiers back home to England. Letters crossed with words, first one way, then the other filling the page, the paper and ink so precious it was a sin to leave a blank space. I read letters written by women facing childbirth, telling their families back in the old world how much they loved them, saying their goodbyes in case they didn't survive the very real danger of giving birth on the frontier. I read letters where women described the experience of bearing a child and then holding the wee thing as the life leached out. Letters describing the seeds carried from the old world and planted in the newly upturned soil of a child's grave. These letters held the heaviness of grief, of homesickness or desperate isolation. But of course in writing home to the old, these women were also describing their homes in the new. I must pause. It's suddenly dark. The afternoons are short. Not Canada short, but Australia short. The winter days plunge into night in a way that disorients my inland soul. So I must down pen and feed animals and humans. I shall return. Somehow, when I was in Sydney last May, the stars aligned and Maggie and I met each other in real life. We decided to meet at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I was only going by her Instagram profile photo, but I knew Maggie right away. A warm smile and eyes that asked, Is that you? We ate lunch with my mom at the gallery cafe. It was a beautiful day. The glass doors were open to the palms and the gum trees. We watched as several ibis tried to peck at the food on the tables just outside the window. It's so true. We spoke easily about our lives, about Canada, about our work, about marriage and motherhood. The foliage was different. The birds were different. But we, we were so much the same. Later, we strolled through the collections, trying to squeeze in all the questions we had for each other before the gallery closed. 
We pass paintings of impressionist landscapes with rolling hills, weeping trees, gentle figures lounging on the grass. But then we stopped in front of a painting that was different from all the others. It was called Bailed Up, painted in 1895 by the English-Australian painter Tom Roberts. It's a scorching hot and dusty scene. A bushranger is holding up a stagecoach. A bushranger is an outlaw, usually an escaped convict. I had to look it up. A tree has been cut down and is blocking the stagecoach so it can't get away. Maggie said it was the first painting of its time to depict the truth, the lawlessness of hot, dry Australia, rather than the lush pastoral images that Australians thought the world wanted to see. It was real life that made us stop. That's when I asked Maggie about her life in Tasmania. I couched the question with the words flavor of home, but she knew what I meant. I wasn't just talking about roasted lamb. I wanted real life, the kind that stops you in your tracks. I'm back and I'm recalling our conversation in the art gallery. When you asked me about the flavors of my home here in Tasmania, I'd paused. For me, it's a complicated question. So I reached for a few lines from one of my favorite poems, a poem I'd first read as a graduate student in the library at UBC about 20 years ago. The poet is Marie Harris, and she wrote, I lie down in tea-colored water. I think, be careful, do not say home. The bones of that word mend slowly. You'd ask what I thought the words meant, and I said, for me, it was about how precious home is, and how when that word becomes broken, it's like a breaking of ourselves. And in the way poetry can be a portal, allowing us to look back and forward, I knew, sitting on the floor in the research stacks at UBC, that somehow I'd be asked to break the bones of my knowledge of home and rebuild it somewhere new. I copied the lines in my notebook and understood something more of the women whose letters I was reading. As this memory rises, I lick salt from my lips. This morning, after I'd found the old horse, I went to the beach. I ran and then swam, plunged really, twenty strokes out and back in the icy sea. It's all I can stand without a wetsuit. My head ached from the cold. I felt my blood suck inward, my edges shrink, and then the thrill of its rushing release as I walked out of the waves. The sea temperature hovers around 10 degrees in winter, and it's taken six years of living on this isolated coast to finally learn how to swim here. I know now. I know I have to embrace the cold and not hide from it. When I walk from the surf, I glow, and I'm claimed by this place. For the rest of the day, a taste of salt. This slight crispness to my skin has become the taste of here, the taste of home. Today, it's also the taste of tears. I read Maggie's first memoir at the cottage in early July. I sat outside on an Adirondack, wrapped in a blanket, smiling through tears at her beautifully told story. I only got up to feed people, pour more coffee, and swim. The Northumberland Strait is known for some of the warmest temperatures north of Virginia, but not in early July. 
Running in is the only way. The water numbs my toes and slaps me in the face. But I go in anyway because the salt, the intensity, that shocking inhale, it makes me feel alive. And I know that Maggie, on the other side of the world, was swimming in Tasmanian winter temperatures, 20 strokes out and back. And if she could do it, so could I. Afterwards, back in my blanket and chair, salt drying on my skin, I thought about how the flavor of this place is salty. The wind, the waves, the ruggedness, the people, so down to earth and sometimes coarse, in a flavorsome way. It's what I miss when I'm away. But would I know this flavor if I had never left? Would I taste the void? Home is a word this place still wears carefully. Making a home, building a sense of place is a process that's always fascinated me. In my research, I questioned why some women failed to make this leap and others embraced it. I found if women profoundly, creatively engaged in the land, then they more quickly saw themselves reflected in this new place. If they were passionate gardeners, if they could move beyond the boundaries of their homestead fence on horse or by foot, if they learned to see beauty in the new then they started to write about themselves as being home. What I didn't understand was that I was researching for myself and how, like those frontier women, I'd be required to use grafting skills to make a home here. Those first few years I was so homesick it was a physical ache. So I dug in the garden. I rode my pony out mustering. I walked on the farm. I learned the names of the paddocks. I learned to identify the birds, native only to Tasmania. Learned the different shapes of the seasons. Learned to look forward to February as the height of summer. And to not expect spring to turn up until at least the end of October. I guess you could say I was learning the flavours of here. It's taken a while. But now I know how to cook mussels pulled from the bay only a few kilometres away. I know that a crayfish boiled in seawater is the sweetest flesh of all. I know that I can feed an army of kids or shearers from our home-killed lamb poked through with rosemary and garlic from the garden. I've learned there's still a constant system of barter here. I'll open the back door and find a small pile of ducks left in exchange for wood. There might be venison steaks and wallaby sausages. Or best of all, a sack of the sweetest, fattest oysters. And as I grow more comfortable, I find it easy to handle these flavours lightly. I'm not so overwhelmed with how to cook them. And as I move through my days, juggling writing, those dreaded domestic duties and farm chores, it's the taste of salt on my skin that ties me to this place in the same way. The dust of the inland has left a mark that can't be washed away. of pink and grey as a flock of galahs blocks the sun for a moment. 
I even, though I almost choke on the words, miss the dust. But your question, what is the flavour of home, has made me realise that I've expanded. I've made myself different to fit in here, so that this place with its pastures touched by the salty coastal winds, the sheep that grow wool so luscious you think it might be spun silk, the fish, the oysters, the white sand beaches, and the aqua water, and most of all, the embrace of the cold sea. All of it means I've come to see myself as part of this place. So tonight, I'll go to sleep, wrapped in the smell of wood smoke. A hint of salt will add flavour to my dreams. But under my fingernails will still be the scent of an old horse who gave me the chance to make a bigger home than the hand life had dealt me. I hope this answers your question, dear Lindsay. With love, Maggie. So tell me, what's the flavor of your home? We'd love to hear. I'm on Twitter at The Food Podcast, Instagram at Lindsay Cameron Wilson, or at The Food Podcast. You can tweet Maggie at Mags McKellar, M-A-G-S-M-A-C-K-E-L-L-A-R, or find her on Instagram at Maggie McKellar underscore. And Maggie's books are available at all good bookstores. And big loving thanks to Sam Parton and the Be Good Tanyas for writing and performing such beautiful music and sharing it with us. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 